The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 67, The Mongols, Part 1. The Mongols come across in history generally as somewhat mysterious as they created one of the greatest empires in world history. But they did not start out as a modern nation state within a neighbourhood of other nation states, which is typical of some of the great empires that we already know about through this podcast, such as the Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire and the many Persian and Chinese empires. However, What we do know is that the partially or fully nomadic societies of the steppe lands that stretched from Europe in the west to the Pacific coast in the east were able to take control of great expanses of territory. There are a number of reasons for this. The steppe lands are predominantly open grassland territories that are not hindered by mountainous terrain or large areas of woodland. The nomadic societies had to remain mobile to be able to track large herds of animals which would contribute to their diet and so they mastered the art of being able to move in large numbers at speed, especially thanks to the presence of horses in their area of the world and their ability to domesticate them and utilise them. They were also tribal and competitive for resources, meaning that they would also master horsemanship to give them a speed advantage when doing battle with one another. General speed, adaptability and battle hardiness meant that they could shock established nation states who had settled into a rigid way of existence with a uniform military that were used to operating under strict organised instruction rather than being able to wage effective war at the drop of a hat. The world realised the abilities of the steppe cultures peoples more than ever when the Mongols decided to expand from their heartlands in the 13th century. The Mongols were not the first steppe land peoples to expand their territories and terrorise the more established nation states of the world. The established nation states of the world had learned in the past that if they underestimated the steppe cultures, that they could easily pay the price and often only begin to realise it when it was far too late. Such was the speed and ferocity of their nature. 
in established nation states where legal sympathy could spare the lives of people during warfare, it was often the case that the stories written about Stepland people's invasions and attacks were unsympathetic and often men, women, children and animals were slaughtered without hesitance or remorse. We can go back as far as 5,000 years to the time of the Yamnaya culture to see that peoples who mastered the steppelands would have the ability to influence neighbouring cultures that were more sedentary in their day-to-day lives, maybe living among fertile river systems. This is very well illustrated by the theory of the Yamnaya culture being believed to be the Proto-Indo-European language speakers, a language which evolved to become many different languages that almost half the world's population can call one of those evolved languages their first language. After the late Bronze Age collapse near the end of the second millennium BCE, a new wave of civilised societies emerged in the Near East. And during the first millennium BCE, Greek and Persian societies would emerge as dominant by the middle of that millennium. They recognised a peoples called the Scythians, who appeared to have a very extensive area of influence. And although they were viewed upon as uneducated barbarians, they were still highly respected for their abilities. There were never any notable successful incursions into their territory. The Scythians dominated the western steppelands in a similar way to how the Xiongnu dominated the eastern steppelands, more closely linked to the developed cultures of China. We do not know how the Scythians and the Xiongnu were related to each other, if at all. All we know about them is what their respective developed neighbours wrote about them. Some refer to the Xiongnu as the ancient ancestors of the Mongols. Certainly the Chinese began construction of the Great Wall to keep the Xiongnu out. The Xiongnu had conquered the Donghu peoples by the end of the 2nd century BCE and the Donghu dispersed as a consequence. One group of the Donghu, called the Xianbei, established themselves in the lands to the north of China and took a measure of revenge on the Xiongnu before becoming integrated in the politics of northern China during the Sixteen Kingdoms period. It may have been within the expanded lands of the Xianbei that the original Turkic and Mongolic peoples emerged. In the 4th century, a confederation of tribes coalesced to become the Ruran Khaganate, from within the former lands of the Xiongnu and in turn the Xianbei. In the 6th century, the Ruran Khaganate was defeated by a Gukturk rebellion and the Khaganate was now in Turkic hands. During this period, other steppe cultures emerged, such as the Huns in the far west, the Avars, and also the Hephthalites in the south. Historians have always struggled to identify the exact relationship between all of these steppe cultures. The Turkic Khaganate 
fragmented into a Western polity and an Eastern polity. The Eastern Turkic Khaganate roughly covered the lands once dominated by the Xiongnu in the north of China. Despite a brief conquest by the Tang dynasty of China, Uyghurs would eventually take control of the Eastern Turkic Khaganate lands. Uyghurs are considered to be ethnically Turkic too. In the 10th century, Kitans would take control of these lands. The Kitans are not considered to be ancestral to neither Turks or Mongols, but they are likely to have had a common origin to both the Turks and Mongols, and it is thought that they were most closely related to the Mongols out of the two. The Kitans considered their dynasty to be Chinese as they ruled over some of the lands of northern China, so they called themselves the Liao dynasty. Another peoples of the steppe lands whose historical relationship with the Mongols and the Turks is uncertain are the Tungusic peoples. The southern branch of the Tungusic peoples, often referred to as the Jurchens, established a heartland in Manchuria and they pushed the Kitans west and out of Chinese lands. The Jurchens would establish their own northern Chinese dynasty called the Jin. This brings us up to the 12th century and the beginning of our story about the rise of the Mongols. The Kamak Mongols The Mongols were pastoral nomads living on the eastern steppe lands and their origins are relatively unknown due to the fact that no literate society was in close contact with them. Life on the steppe was dramatically different to life in civilised nations. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle was coupled with pastoralism, and the people lived in seasonal camps. This way of life was more typical of life on the planet from thousands of years previous, before the agricultural revolution. The climate could be quite erratic on the steppe, with winters being very cold and requiring the people to be experts when it came to clothing and sheltering themselves. The animals that they relied upon for hides and meat would migrate seasonally and this required the people of the steppe to migrate with them. The clans of these lands were no confederation. With limited resources, the clans would be forced to fight each other for their share of the spoils. Clan leaders would often try to increase their power by bringing other clans into their own, making their number larger and more irresistible. One such confederation of clans were the Kamag Mongols. The Kamag Mongols were unified by a man called Kabul Khan, who was a descendant of many renowned clan leaders and an ancestor of Chinggis Khan. Kabul would be alive in the early 12th century and he clashed with the Jurchens. The Jurchens were growing in power from their heartlands in Manchuria during Kabul's lifetime and they would cause the downfall of the Kitan Liao dynasty of northern China, taking control themselves and establishing the Jurchen Jin dynasty in its place. 
the Kamag Mongols would stand against the Jurchens in their ambitions and would also resist them in the Jurchens' bid to exact dominance over the Mongols. The Jurchens would recognise Kabul as the Mongol Khan. After the lifetime of Kabul Khan, the Kamag Mongols still maintained a significant presence. They would have their differences with the Tatars, who would betray the trust of the Mongols after a meeting to organise a marriage alliance resulted in the murder of the Kamag Khan. The Tatars were among the tribes of the Eastern Steppe alongside the Mongols, but unlike the Mongols who spoke a Mongolic language, the Tatars are understood to have spoken a Turkic language. The battles between the Kamag Mongols and the Tatars were detrimental to the unity of the Mongols who were plunged into a succession crisis when in 1171 the Tatars successfully poisoned Isugi, the effective leader of the Mongols. Temujin One of Isugi's sons was still a minor when Isugi died and his name was Temujin, which interestingly was a Tartar word for a blacksmith. The blacksmith meaning is probably completely irrelevant. It is more likely that Temujin was named in honour of one of Isugi's captured Tartar enemies for whatever reason. Many members of Isugi's clan defected following his death and the young Temujin had to become a fugitive. During Isugi's lifetime, he had made a bond with another clan leader called Turul. In fact, they had become blood brothers, a practice which has taken place in various forms in many areas of the world, where two people may ceremonially cut themselves and join their cuts so that one's blood may flow in the veins of the other. This was performed to create an unbreakable bond between the two. Temujin would link up with Turul in a bid to create an alliance to guarantee his safety. Temujin would fight alongside Turul and train those members of his tribe who had stayed loyal to him during these times of trouble. It was during this time that Temujin really started to gain the command and respect of his men and he would begin to regain some of the power and prestige that had been built up by his father and lost after his father's death. When he had amassed a large enough army of men, he would avenge the death of his father by defeating the Tartars in battle. He also took revenge on the Taichuts who had captured him when he was a young adult. During the first decade of the 13th century, Temujin would continue to conquer all of the tribes of the steppe in his geographical vicinity by military and diplomatic means. This would bring many tribes of different ethnicities under Temujin's rule, and so he would need to take an appropriate name to signify his imperial rule. So Temujin would become Chinggis Khan, and we will focus more closely on him on his own dedicated episode. Many Mongolic and Turkic tribes had a spiritual belief in the universe having a spiritual essence or a personification, which they referred to as Tengri. And the worship of Tengri is referred to as Tengrism. 
It is said that Chinggis Khan had been given the instruction of Tengri to become the ruler of the world and so this would validate his mission to expand his area of influence. So it is for now that we can say that there was a Mongol Empire and its expansion over the coming decades would be incredible and like nothing the world had experienced before. The Mongol Army It would come as no surprise that the Mongol army contained a lot of highly skilled horsemen. For very many centuries, the armies of the steppe lands contained skilled bowmen who were able to release arrows while on horseback, which had always given them the ability to blitz armies and settlements at such lightning speed that those on the receiving end barely had time to process what was going on before they could consider any kind of defence or counter-attack. The typical Mongol bow was up to a metre in length and was a composite bow made from wood and horn to aid with the bow's tensile strength and animal sinew for the bowstring. The mounted bowmen were a major force in the Mongol army. The Mongols did use gunpowder and are responsible somewhat for the spread of its knowledge on a global scale, but this did not supplant the mounted bowmen's role in the army, which demonstrates the limited role that gunpowder weapons played in warfare during the 13th century. Chinggis Khan's management of his army has been compared to the Roman management of their armies. The armies would be managed to higher levels of discipline and this would be achieved partly with the threat of harsh punishment for misconduct or disobedience. The horsemen of the Mongol army would use lamella armour to cover their bodies and the body of their horses. Lamella armour by its very definition, is comprised of small plates laced together and as could be common in the Far East, it was often made of leather as well as metal such as iron. Lamella armour was practical and effective for the efficiency of the horsemen. Some would be known to wear helmets too. The structure of the army units resembled that of the Roman legions too. The units would be separated into units based on decimal numbers of 10, 100 and 1000. Different ethnicities would be integrated with each other and it is suggested that this was done to prevent rebellions. Invasion Historians target the year 1206 as the year that Chinggis Khan was first recognised as the Khan of the United Mongols. It is also at this point where we consider the Mongols to start their international rampage, but we do have to recognise that even by this time, Chinggis Khan had led his clans to defeat various steppe-land cultures of differing ethnicities, so his armies and his territory already had a multi-ethnic characteristic. To the north of the eastern steppe was mountains and forests, so there was not really any significant human presence. The Mongols had originated from the fringes of the forests at the base of the Kenti Mountains, so the only direction to head in was southwards. To the south of the eastern steppe was the Sinosphere, cultures that had been influenced by the Chinese. Some of the northernmost nations of the Sinosphere 
were governed by people who were not ethnically Chinese, often referred to as of Han ethnicity. As the forest turned to grasslands, the grasslands turned to desert as we migrate southwards. A century previous, the Kitan peoples had established their Liao dynasty around the lands of the Gobi Desert. By declaring themselves as a Chinese dynasty, it would enhance their reputation as being appointed by the Mandate of Heaven, thus validating their leaders as emperors. The Jurchens had emerged to their east in Manchuria and conquered the lands of the Liao dynasty pushing the Kitans west, where a rump state called Karakitai was established. The Jurchens also established a Chinese dynasty called the Jin dynasty and they pushed the firmly established Song dynasty of China into the far south of China, while the Jurchen Jin took control of the north, including the lands of the Yellow River. Another peoples called the Tanguts had also established their own dynasty called the Western Xia around the area of the Hexi Corridor. The Hexi Corridor is best described as a traversable area to the south of the Gobi Desert, which represented the first section of the Silk Road westwards from China, which would lead travellers into Central Asia. For the purpose of the Mongols, there would be great economical advantages to taking control of Western Xia. So, to summarise, the Mongols now dominated the lands of the Eastern Steppe. To their direct south was the Western Xia, the Tanguts, occupying the Hexi Corridor of the Silk Road. To their southeast were the lands of northern China, now controlled by the Jurchen Jin dynasty. To their southwest were the lands of Karakitai, the Kitan nation who controlled much of Central Asia, and the Silk Road routes to Sogdia, the gateway to the Islamic empires and the west. To their direct west were more steppe-land cultures such as the Kimeks and the Kipchaks, which would bridge the gap from the Mongols to the Slavs of the easternmost societies of Europe. The first target for Chinggis Khan would be to subjugate the western Xia to take control of the Hexi Corridor. The Mongols against Western Xia the wealthy Tangut dynasty of Western Xia was the first nation on Chinggis Khan's hit list and he would accuse the Tanguts of allowing a rival of the Mongols into their territory. This was clearly just an excuse to start conducting raids on Western Xia. These raids actually started the year before the name Chinggis Khan was being used, so the problems between the Mongols and the Tanguts started before he was recognised as the great Mongol Khan. The Tanguts did have a capable army, however, and they were not just going to sit back and allow the Mongols to do as they wished. So they started to chase the Mongols out of their territory. The Mongols were able to resist Tangut advances, and the Mongols would successfully capture the western Xia city of Wulahai, a city which I have not been able to locate on the modern map. 
the western Xia capital city was at Xinqing, which we know to be the modern Chinese city of Yingchun. In order for the Mongols to attack the capital city, they would need to cross the Hilan mountain range. The mountain pass to the capital was guarded by a heavily garrisoned fortress. It is said that tens of thousands were stationed behind the fortress walls. For the Mongol army to attack the fortress could be a reckless move. So Chinggis waited for two months looking for a weakness in the fortress that didn't exist. As Chinggis retreated, the garrison emerged and attacked the Mongol rearguard. However, it seems that this was the fortress's weakness. Chinggis was banking on the garrison emerging from the fortress to attack his rearguard. Hidden Mongol forces emerged from behind the hills and attacked the Western Xia army while in the open and this enabled the Mongols to attack the fortress again, this time successfully due to the limited defences that now remained there. Even though Chinggis Khan had successfully found the key to the lock in order to create a pathway to the western Xia capital of Xinqing, the job was far from complete. The Mongols had enjoyed success against fellow steppeland cultures, but now they were trying to tackle established and fortified cities. The Mongols besieged Xinqing, but needed to turn up the heat quickly to attempt to hasten its fall. The Mongols would have realised that Western Xia was operating as a vassal to the larger Jurchen Jin dynasty of northern China and the potential conquest of Western Xia to the Mongols would be of great concern to the Jurchens, who would be likely to send reinforcements to help defend the territory. Coupled this with the fact that the Mongols would not want to exhaust their resources and a speedy conquest of the city of Xinjiang would be preferred. As it turned out, the Tangut Emperor Li Anquan had indeed reached out to the Jurchen Emperor Wanyang Yongji for help. The result of this request is that Wanyang Yongji refused to send help, and his reasoning was that he was happy for the potential threats to his Jin dynasty to be battling with each other. In Wanyang Yongji's mind, keeping Western Xia in a weakened condition, suited his agenda, despite them already being somewhat subject to him. So Chinggis Khan had a bit more freedom to besiege the western Xia capital city of Xinqing. But that didn't mean that he had the knowledge. In fact, he almost blew it. The Mongols' weaponry was not really advanced enough to breach the city walls, so Chinggis Khan decided to dam the canal of the city. However, he wasn't attempting to prevent water entering the city, rather prevent water from exiting the city, so rather than starve the city of its water, he was looking to flood it. It sounds like a clever idea in principle, but once again, the Mongols lacked the engineering expertise to see the project through. And when the dam broke, it was the Mongols who ended up wading through floodwaters instead. Despite this though, the situation for Western Xia was looking grim. 
The Mongols had laid waste to a lot of the fertile lands that fed the Western Xia population, and the Tangut Emperor Li and Xuan was forced into a concession. By January 1210, the Tangut submitted to the Mongols to prevent further suffering, and Li and Chuan gave his daughter to Chinggis Khan to be his wife. Western Xia was now a vassal to the Mongols. The Mongols against Jin China Wan Yan Yongji, the Jin Emperor, wasted little time in sending envoys to the court of Chinggis Khan in order to secure his vassalage. Chinggis Khan was understandably not impressed and despite some coercion from various parties, he chose not to launch a major invasion of Jin China, at least not immediately. Western Xia was not willing to waste any time though, upset by the decision of Wan Yang Yongji to offer no support to Western Xia's defence to the Mongols, they chose to invade Jin China themselves. Chinggis Khan wanted to launch an attack but on his own terms and he would be sure to let the Jurchens of Jin China know that he had no intention of being their vassal. When Wang Yang Yongji learned of Chinggis Khan claiming that he had the blessing of Tengri to launch an invasion of Jin China to avenge the suffering that the Jurchen had caused to the steppe people in recent decades, he laughed it off, stating that the menial force of the Mongols was absolutely no match for the powerhouse of Jin China. With Western Xia already attacking Jin China, Chinggis Khan would be happy to move into Jin China alongside them. Chinggis Khan invaded Jin China in the year 1211, but his invasion was hampered when he was struck by an arrow in the knee. This only caused a temporary setback though, and Mongol progress against the Jin was considerable. With the aid of the Kitans, the lands of Jurchen origin in Manchuria were taken away from them, leaving the Jin controlling the lands of northern China centred on the Yellow River, and what happened next felt like Jin China getting a taste of its own medicine after abandoning western Xia to its fate just a couple of years earlier. The condition of China in general at this point in history is that it was separated into two halves. Originally, a dynasty called the Song was in control of all of the Chinese lands. The traditional people of China are called Han people, and the Song are seen as a dynasty of the Han people, in other words, not ruled by foreign people. So the contrast would be the Jin dynasty, which was ruled by Jurchens, who are not ethnically Chinese, or Han to be more correct. During the early 12th century, the Jin dynasty invaded Song, China, and took control of the northern half of China and its cities mainly around the Yellow River system. The Song were pushed into the south of China, where they maintained rule of the lands and cities centred on the Yangtze River system. While Jin China was being attacked by the Mongols, the Jurchens appealed to the Song for assistance, but this time it would be the Song's turn to ignore the appeal 
and watched the Jurchens struggle. The Jurchens would not have imagined how quickly things would turn for them. The Mongols must have sent a wave of terror throughout the nation as they would conquer towns and then recruit the townspeople into their armies. The discipline and distribution of individuals within the Mongol army was carried out in such a way that rebellions from within the Mongol army were almost impossible, with there being no opportunity for collaborations within the ranks. Residents of Jin towns hid in fear of the arrival of the Mongols. The nation was collapsing. Distrust between members of the Jin imperial court and the Jin military generals led to a series of assassinations which would undermine the stability and unity of the nation. The Mongols would then target the city of Beijing, which is the modern capital city of China. During the time of the Jin dynasty, it was also the capital city, but its name was Zhongdu. Chinggis Khan would send a force to besiege the capital, while the rest of his army plundered the countryside. The same thing was happening to the Jurchens that had happened to the Tanguts. The Mongols would take the wealth of the land and the manpower of the Tanguts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The outcome of the battle for Zhongdu would be the subject of the next episode. A big warm thank you to all of you for listening to this very exciting episode about the Mongols. It's been a long time coming and we finally made it and we get to talk about this incredible race of people and what they did uh, way back in the 13th century. Some incredible, and we've only just started the journey, haven't we? There's more to come. So can't wait for more about this uh, incredible race, the Mongols and the Mongol Empire. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And you can qualify for gifts and rewards. This week, we welcome to the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, Joe Hanneker. Well done, Joe. Thank you very much and welcome in. Uh, If you'd like to access bonus material, whereas you used to have to subscribe, now you don't have to. The bonus material is available for everybody, so you don't need to subscribe. You can listen to it free of charge. So just look out for the debrief episode that uh, is published alongside this one, and you'll get to hear a little bit about the source material used Uh, to create the podcast that you just listened to 
and a little bit about the background of the History of the World podcast, what's been going on behind the scenes uh, in the last week or two. So don't forget to listen in to that. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, then please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Well, quite an amusing message to um, to start with. Uh, the title of the uh, email is Apology. And uh, it says, Hello, Chris. I mistakenly recently posted a comment on your Facebook page about the mistaken pronunciation of words like oryx, abalone, dica and orignation. I intended that for the prehistory podcast and not the History of the World podcast and have since deleted it. My comment must have seemed oddly out of place and I apologise for my confusion. The History of the World podcast is exceptional in every way and as such I am proud to be a lifelong member of the Illuminati. Your pronunciation, articulation, vocabulary and accent are perfect. Please do accept my sincere apology kindly. Malcolm Quentin, British Columbia, Canada. Well, Malcolm, um, I I read the email initially and I was a little bit confused because although I can remember talking about Oryx and Orignacian, I couldn't remember talking about Abalone and Dica. And um, I, I was scratching my head, but then I thought, do you know what? I, I really didn't think too deeply about it. I assumed that I had mispronounced these words um, and I just humbly sort of liked your comment and took it as constructive feedback. Um, I, I did scratch my head a little bit and then um, and then you've sent me this email and it's sort of cleared it up for me. I thought, well, I, I just don't remember talking about a couple of these things. But uh, then also, I don't even know if I've, I've pronounced them properly now oryx abalone dica and orignacian um orignacian is a bit of a con, con it's a bone of contention really that one i've heard it pronounced uh aurignacian i've heard it pronounced orignation so um yeah there might be some that would suggest that i have pronounced it wrong anyway um but who knows anyway i've it's very kind of you to say that my pronunciation, articulation, vocabulary and accent are perfect. Um, I I often think that they're not, but so, so it's, it's quite nice to hear that someone thinks that uh, they are um, or even just uh, at least says so. Thank you very much. Um, William Medwid has written in and said, Hi, Chris, just wanted to drop a line out to you to voice my appreciation of your efforts and say... Great job. I live north of Boston, Massachusetts and picked up on the podcast last fall. My day job is as a physician, but I have been a student of history much of my life. I was doing some research on the Byzantine Empire at the time and found your episodes relating to that. If I wasn't already hooked, the ancient World Cup totally reeled me in. I went back and started at the beginning of Volume 4 to enjoy the cup and associated episodes and and now current. While I have dabbled in some earlier episodes, your treatment of the Bronze Age collapse was excellent. I am very much looking forward to enjoying the earlier volumes of the podcast, much as I need to apply the scientific method to the medical literature. I thoroughly appreciate your focus on historiography and trying to account for bias in historical um, sources. 
your aim to triangulate your information to try to as much as possible interpret what really happened in history extremely commendable i can't say it enough keep it up you noted recently that the discussion of chat gpt that you had been described as a history teacher as you are very often humble you demurred and said you were not a teacher. Well, Chris, I have to disagree. I've donated books and become a patron of your podcast because I am learning wonderful things about history that you are instructing me on. While we are all students in life, sometimes we become teachers and you, my friend, are a great teacher. Be well, William Medwood, a.k.a. Sedge. Um, and, and that's it. Thank you very much, William. Very, very warm and kind message I'm, I'm always humbled just by the kindness that people write to me with um you know such a high praise and and positive words it's wonderful really and um sometimes i have to go on youtube and and read some of the comments under my videos on youtube by all those nutcases uh, to bring myself back down to earth thanks to uh, all of your kindness i i go and um go to youtube and and uh get all that heavy criticism on there, really puts me back in my slot. So uh, thank you so much to you, William, and indeed to everyone else who writes in and says such kind things. It really does mean a lot and it's very encouraging for me. I did get one review this week uh, that's uh, from the Left Bank uh, from the United States of America who's put, uh, well done, I like this programme, it's just the right level of information for someone who knows nothing to sound intelligent, but the presenter's personal asides make him seem like a friend to choose for a long road trip. Um, I um, The right level of information for someone who knows nothing to sound intelligent. I've, is that a good or bad thing? Is that, are you saying that I don't sound intelligent? It's the right level of information for someone who knows nothing to sound intelligent. I see what you're saying. You're saying um, the fact that you may know nothing about history, maybe you listen to the podcast and you may be able to sound intelligent thanks to the content of the podcast. I'm hoping that's what it means. If, if so, it's a compliment. Um, but you've given me one star. I, I, it's probably a mistake, isn't it? You, um, but one star, yeah. Um <laughs> I don't know what to say, really. I hope that's a mistake. Um, nonetheless, it's still a very complimentary um, message. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for a positive review. Um, and that's it this week. Uh, don't forget to tune into the debrief episode for uh, about another 10 minutes more chit-chat. Uh, but if you choose not to listen to that, uh, we'll uh, meet up again next week for a History of the World podcast magazine episode and some more Masters of War ahead of another episode about the Battle of Zhongdu um, from 1215. That will be in um, two weeks' time. So until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time. <laughs>